Well, good morning. Once again, welcome to Grace. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be with, with you this morning. You know, we're, we're in this series called uh, Jesus in His Own Words, where we're looking at the I am statements of, of Jesus, trying to learn a little more about His person and His purpose, who He is, that He Jesus is God and that he is these different things, these different images toward us, for us. We're revealing a little bit more about his purpose each week. You know, as you read scripture, it's important that you read it in context, right? I, I know that you've heard that. I know that's not, that's not new news for you. You can't take a passage of scripture out of its context because then you have the potential to interpret what it's saying as something different than it is actually saying. And this passage here in John 14 should be read, honestly, in the context of the surrounding chapters. Chapters 13 through 17 are what is known as the upper room discourse. It is this night before Jesus was betrayed, this is that night, just moments before he was betrayed, they are in the upper room around this table, and he begins to, knowing that he only has a few minutes left with them, lay out some of the, the final things that he wants them to know, that he needs them to know before he is betrayed, before he is arrested, before he is crucified. He knows that, that there are things coming in the next few days that he wants them to be prepared for. And so really, chapters 13 through 17 are, are these, just this last night where he is just, let me tell you everything that I really, really want you to grab a hold of. So 13 through 17, those are very, very important, very important chapters in the book of John. But he begins this evening. He begins this evening by washing their feet. He starts off in John 13 with washing their feet, and, and he teaches them about service and about humility. And then from there, he, he warns them that one of them is going to betray him. And then after that, he tells them that he's leaving and they can't go with him. And then after that, he breaks the news to Peter that no matter how, how committed Peter thinks he is, Peter is going to deny even knowing who Jesus is. Is And then he says this phrase that I'm sure all of us have heard, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's, it's important, as I said, to read John 14 in its context because often John 14 is misused. John 14 is used often as a funeral passage simply stating that there is comfort knowing that there is assurance of heaven for the one who you have lost and you can be in heaven with them too. And that is what it's used as. And, and I think there's room in here for assurance of salvation. Don't, uh, don't, don't hear me say that that's not what this is saying. There, there is assurance in our salvation. There is a place for you in heaven if you believe 
in the work of Jesus, but this isn't simply a passage uh, about comforting those who are mourning the loss of a loved one. This isn't simply a passage to remind us that one day we'll be able to be with that loved one in heaven. This isn't simply a passage about your assurance of your salvation. This morning, we're going to see that this passage was originally a tool, a tool to handle pain and suffering and shame. It was a tool to help the disciples walk through the trials that they were going to face in the coming weeks and days ahead. If you realize that this is connected to the chapter before, because it's in the same evening, you have to think of what they were feeling and what they were experiencing when Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. When he said this, they were, they were feeling all kinds of emotions from what he had just told them. They had just learned that one of them was going to betray Jesus. They had to... They had to just be full of all kinds of conflicting emotions, fear of, wait, am I the one who's going to betray him? No way I would betray you. Are you telling me that one of us who love you deeply, one of us whom you love deeply, one of us who, who's given up everything and is following you, you, you're telling us that one of us is going to betray you? There's, there's no way. There had to be fear. There had to be disgust. There had to be anger. There had to be this, this judgment looking at every one of them thinking, is it you? Is it you? I know it's not me, so is it you? And then he tells them, I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me. Now, I, I want you to put yourself in, in their shoes for a moment. They left everything to follow Jesus. I mean, they left careers and families and they left life. They left everything they knew to follow this man, and now he's leaving and they can't continue to follow him. What's the point? Why, why do we give up everything to follow you? They were probably dis disappointed. They were probably frustrated. They were probably sad at the thought of, well, like, what, what, is, what have we been doing for the last three years? They were probably a little bit, a little bit scared. What am I going to do now? I burned all my bridges. I, I have nothing to go back to. What am I going to do now? Like I, I expected that when I followed you, you were going to set up your kingdom here in this, this, this earth, in this world, and that I was going to be a part of that, and, and I was going to play a, a major role in your kingdom here in this world, and now you're leaving, and I can't follow you? What the heck? And then he says, oh, yeah, Peter, you're, you're going to deny even knowing me. I mean, you know Peter. I'm sure he was like, how very dare you? There is no way, no way I will, I will deny you. Not a chance that I would deny you. In fact, I'm ready to die right now. See, Jesus was saying these words to prepare them for what was about to happen. 
Because in all honesty, in a matter of hours, these 12 men who were the closest to Jesus in the entire world would betray him. They would abandon him and they would deny even knowing him. And Jesus knew that and he knew that in a few hours from this moment, they would be huddled in a room filled with fear and shame about how they handled the the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus because they did all abandon him. In Luke, it says that they stood off at a distance and watched these things Happen. See, they may not have betrayed Jesus in the way that Judas did by selling him out for money, but they betrayed him by standing back and running to protect themselves and allowing this to happen. They betrayed him in the sense that they stood in fear and watched at a distance while he was beaten and crucified. And the guilt and shame of that The guilt and shame of what they were about to do, Jesus knew would weigh very heavy on them. And so he knew, he knew they were going to feel that and he wanted to prepare them for that by saying all of these, hey, I want you to know, I want you to know that I know all of this is happening I'm not going to be surprised by all of this. I'm not going to be surprised by the fact that someone's going to betray me, that you're all going to abandon me, that you're going to deny even knowing me. I know that all of this is happening, and I am willingly choosing to do this anyways. He wanted them to remember that when they were facing all of the shame and guilt that they would be facing in this moment following the crucifixion of Jesus. He wanted them to understand that he knew what was gonna happen and still chose to go on their behalf. He wanted them to have this this confidence that, okay, okay, so even though even though I, I failed, even though I abandoned him, even though I neglected him, even though I did that, he He knew that was going to happen before I did it, and he still went for me. Jesus wanted them to remember this conversation so they wouldn't let their hearts be troubled over the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that would inevitably come over the next few days. This is such a difficult thing for us to grasp, right? I mean, how, how hard is it for us to really understand and live into the reality that Jesus' love and care for us does not change because we stumble and we fail and we sin. He loves us absolutely the same after our sin as he did before our sin. His love does not change. And we, we understand this intellectually, but we don't actually grasp it and live into it. See, Jesus knew about all of your sins before he died for you, and still he chose to die for you. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were future sins? Exactly, all of them. 
See, we, we have this skewed understanding that when, when I get saved, I, I ask Jesus to forgive me of the sins that I have committed, and he forgives those, but I, I'm not positive what happens with the sins in the future, right? That, that I still, I, I sin, and so now I, I, I hope he can forgive those. I hope he can, he can accept me. I hope that he can love me even after I sin in the future, this is why we, we allow shame and condemnation to, to, to wreak havoc on our lives because we don't remember, we don't remember that Jesus willingly died for all of your sins before you ever committed one of them. Jesus wanted his disciples to know in the moments in, in, in the next few hours when they felt guilt and shame and condemnation, he wanted them to remember, I knew what you were going to do before you ever did it, and I still chose to do it for you. He wanted them to be prepared for what they were going to face. He wanted them to have a tool to be able to handle the shame that they would feel. No, he willingly chose knowing I would do that. That means he still loves me. He can still accept me. And he will forgive me. He also knew that in the weeks and months and years ahead that the people in this room, the people in this room would begin this movement that would change the entire course of history. But he knew that in doing so, they would face troubles and they would face trials and they would face persecution and they would face difficulty and suffering that they can't even begin to fathom in this moment he wanted them to, he wanted to prepare them for what they were going to face in the the moments and weeks and years ahead of them so he shares all of this and says let not your hearts be troubled let not your heart be troubled this this let not your heart be troubled. It's this idea of, of stopping something that has already begun. Don't let it continue. Stop it. Don't, don't let it continue. And uh, this, this idea of trouble here is, is being paralyzed by fear or, or, or dread. Don't, don't let yourself, this is, this is what he's saying, is don't, don't let yourself be paralyzed by fear or dread or shame that you feel. Don't let yourself be paralyzed by your circumstances. He's giving them a tool for handling every circumstance in their life that comes against them. He's giving them tools to handle all of the opposition, whether it be shame from the enemy or condemnation from the enemy or, or persecution or trials or just simple suffering of this life. He gave them a tool to handle all of their circumstances. So you can't control the suffering that you're going to face. You can't control the hurts that you're going to face. You can't control the initial feelings of shame that you feel when you, when you fall, when you sin. You can't control what condemning thoughts rush into you, but you can 
stop them. You can't always keep them from coming to you, but you can stop them. You can keep yourself from being controlled by them. How? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus says, introduce faith into that moment. Introduce faith into your circumstances. Introduce faith into this situation. Believe that Jesus willingly chose you, that, that he willingly chose you to go on your behalf, as he goes on to say that I'm going to prepare a place for you. We introduce faith into that moment that he is there preparing a place for us. See, I'm not saying that all of our suffering is a lack of faith, not at all. I'm not saying that, that guilt is all a bad thing. But there is a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I did bad. Shame is I am Bad. There's a difference in the two. Guilt is actually something that is useful. So I'm not saying that we shy away from guilt because guilt leads us to repentance. Guilt leads us back to where we should be, but, but guilt can also lead us to shame. I'm not saying we avoid guilt. What I'm saying is we stop guilt from becoming shame. Now, I'm not saying that, that suffering shows that you have a lack of faith. That has, been, that has been said, that has been taught throughout church history. That is not what I believe. I do not believe that if you suffer, you have a lack of faith. That is just bananas because in the early church, they actually saw suffering as a sign of worthiness. What we have to do is learn to choose to introduce faith into these situations, into these circumstances. Believe that the gospel is sufficient for this moment that I am currently in. There is forgiveness of sin continually because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, right? Preparing a way for me, right? There is forgiveness of sin continually. There is help in suffering because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father preparing a way for me. And so what does that mean for Jesus to be going to prepare a place for you. He is, he is there preparing a place for you. Thomas begins going down this path by asking, well, basically he's asking, where are you going? If, if we don't know where you're going and we can't come with you, then how in the world can we figure out how to get there? That's, that's ultimately what, what Thomas is asking. Where are you going so we can figure out how to get where you're going? This is actually a really good question because if you don't know the destination, then you can't figure out the path to the destination. So, so Jesus is, is talking about heaven, 
Jesus is talking about heaven. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to, to heaven to prepare a place for you. And I, I love the description that Jesus gives of heaven here. He, 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 he paints this picture of a place of welcome and love and home. This is, this is the, the description that Jesus uses. He says, he says it's my, my father's house. This is familial. This is, this is where family lives. There is family all in this house together. There are many rooms that is communal. There's, there's community here in this family that is right here together in, in heaven. He says it's a place that is prepared for you. This is a sign of welcome and belonging. We want you here. We're ready for you. We're excited to have you here with us. We were looking for you to come. And then he says that I'm coming to bring you to myself. This, this shows us that that heaven is a place of intimacy, that I'm not just bringing you that you can be here too, but that you can be with me, that you are right here with me. And then as Jesus is responding to Thomas's question, he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. The point of being there in heaven is to be with the Father. See, when we think about heaven, we we like to think of the streets of gold and we think of the beauty that's there, or we like to think of the people who have gone before us, right? And and I believe that Jesus addresses that. I I believe that that Jesus talks about the community that is there. I believe that that community is a big part of of heaven. I I believe that, uh, that we should look forward to seeing those who have gone before us. I can't wait to get to heaven. Because I have people, I have people that I'm desperately looking forward to seeing. But I'm so looking forward to being with Jesus. See, heaven is ultimately a place of eternal community in Christ and with God. That is, that is what heaven is all about, community in Christ and with God, that, that we are all together in Christ and with God. Okay, so now, now Thomas asks his second question. So, I mean, the first is, where are you going, heaven? And the second question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? Jesus says, I am the way there. I'm, I'm, the, I'm how you get there. You can't get to heaven except through me. You can't get there except through me. And I, I know this seems similar to John chapter 10 where he said, I'm the door into this. But here Jesus gives a little more insight into what it means for him to be the way. Here he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are three separate statements, but they are actually connected they are connected, and since this is a direct response to, P- to Thomas's question of what is the way, then we have to look at the way as having more emphasis than the truth and the life, not in the sense that I am the way that leads to truth and life, or I am the, the way, I mean, he, is, he is, I am the way because I am the truth and life. These two support that he is the way. I am the way specifically because I am the truth and the life. 
And so what does that mean for him to be the truth and the life that makes him the way for us to be in this place of heaven? And how in the world does that give us a tool to handle suffering and shame and pain right here in this life? That's, that's what we're going to look at for the rest of our 45 minutes. <clears throat> I don't know why you laughed. I'm serious. <clears throat> this, this idea of truth and life actually goes back to John chapter 1 when, when, when John spoke of this word of God who became flesh and lived among us, who was, he says, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. And then John tells us in verse 17 that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this idea of, uh, of grace and truth is linked to the law given by Moses. They are, they are connected. See, we view the law given by Moses in the Torah as a, a set of rules and regulations. But to the Jewish culture at this time, they weren't just a, a set of rules and regulations. They were actually a manual for a blessed life. Psalm 1 Psalm 1 says, blessed is he, right? He, the blessed is the man who lives according to this law. He meditates on it day and night. The, 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 the law is a manual for a blessed life. They, they, they weren't there to hold them down or to condemn them. They, they were to bless them because living according to them was a way to be with the Father. That is what they, they believe that living according to the, the laws and all of that system, that that was the way to the Father. And so Jesus was declaring here that as the, the, the law of Moses in the Old Testament was the way to a blessed life, which is a life in intimate union with God, I am the, the way for that blessed life in the new covenant. It's me. It isn't a, a list of rules and regulations. I am the way into this intimate relationship with God. It is me. You had it in the Old Testament. It was the law and it was the sacrifices, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. It was all pointing to me. I am actually the way. I am the way that leads you to intimate relationship with the Father. See, Jesus being the way doesn't exempt us from rules and laws. Jesus states right off the bat that I am the way because I am the truth and the life. Honestly, living according to the, old, the law in the Old Testament times was an image of living with Christ in the New Testament. There is still an obedience to which we are called in this life with Christ. It just looks a little bit different for us because it is not about working harder and trying more to follow all of these rules. It is now leaning into the person of Jesus. He is the truth and the life. There are two things. Two things that the truth does to enable us to live this life with 
God. The first thing, the first thing that this, this truth does is that it convicts. Truth convicts. See, the reality of Jesus being the truth shows us that there is an absolute truth. The, the truth points out false. It points out what is incorrect. The truth points out those things that we are doing that need to stop. It points out those errors in our lives, right? The truth points out the false. Truth shines a light on our sin, and it points out those areas in our lives that we need to change, that we need to lean into the gospel, lean into the help of God to correct those things. There is no condemnation, as Paul says, but there is conviction, right? There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, but there is conviction, there is a way that is right and a way that is wrong. You are not free to live as you please. That is not what this means. Jesus fulfilling the law does not mean that everything is wiped away and that you can do whatever you want because God is for you and he loves you and he has already forgiven you. That is not what this means. There is still obedience to which God calls us. That is the one part that, that truth convicts. And now here's the beautiful part of this. Truth doesn't just convict us, but truth actually sets us free. Truth sets us free. One of the most known verses in scripture we read earlier this morning, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus being the truth makes this whole statement that much better. Because you see, the truth sets us free not because it is simply a good path for us to walk on. The truth sets us free not just because it is a solid way to live our lives, not just because it is a moral way to live our lives. The truth sets us free because the truth is a person who died to set you free free. That was better than you just responded to it, just so you know. <laughs> Truth sets us free, not just from the punishment of hell, but from the grip of sin in our lives right now. See, Jesus is the truth that sets us free in this current life to live a life of obedience that we are called to live. He enables us, right? He sets us free and he enables us to live this life of obedience with Christ. He enables us to live this life of victory over sin. He enables us to live this life in blessed union with God. Not one day, but now. That is the beauty of the reality that Jesus has gone before us to prepare a way is not that one day we can be with God, but that right now we can be with God. The truth sets us free that we may live in union with Christ right now. I, I know I said it earlier, but I, I'm not positive we really understood what it means. 
not because it was that deep, but because we just let it go by. But heaven is ultimately a place of eternal community in Christ with God. Eternal community, that means that it doesn't start once we get to a place that we can begin this community in Christ with God now because Jesus is there preparing the way for us. What does that mean, preparing the way for us? See, this is all about a relationship with God. This is all about a relationship with God because we are in Christ. Now, next week, we're going to look at what that life is in union with Christ. So I don't want to go too far down that, that, that trail this morning. But the main point of this is that there is, there is comfort in suffering. There is joy in sorrow. There is help in our moments now. There is forgiveness of sin because of Jesus. That's what he's saying is don't, don't let yourself be paralyzed. Don't let yourself not live into all that you are called to live into because of your circumstances, because of your shame, because of all of this, because I have gone before you to prepare a way for you and I will bring you to myself. I am the way. You think about that. It has very little to do with you at all. It is all him. That is how this is, this is encouraging to us. That is how this is a tool for us to use when we are suffering. That is how this is a tool for us to use against our shame and against our condemnation is because it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. See, they didn't quite grasp it at this time, but he was saying, I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm going to die tomorrow so that I can take the punishment for your, your sin. And I can make the payment for your sin. And then I, I, I'm going to raise from the dead on Sunday so that I can defeat I can defeat death so that you may live. And then I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father so that I can always be at his right hand praying for you as we see in Romans 8, that he is always at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to intercede for you. He is always praying for you. That is what he's telling them, that there is help in your sorrow, not just because one day it will be over, but because right now at this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you, and the Holy Spirit is here to help you. That there is victory over sin because Jesus defeated sin and he is now at the right hand of the Father praying for you. And the Holy Spirit is with you, helping you to have victory over sin. That is what it means for Jesus to be in heaven preparing a way for us. He isn't building a house that's taking him a long time. And he's just like, hey, well, we get it, right? We know how, how those contractors are. It's taking a little bit longer than we expected. That's not what's happening here. 
No, he's, he's at the right hand of the Father. When he says, I'm preparing a place for you, it is not that he is, he is crafting this home for you to live in. It is that he is at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you that you can live this life of obedience with his help because not only is he praying for you, but the Holy Spirit is here with you. That is what he means. I am there preparing a place for you and I will bring you to myself. He is the way. What is that thing in your life that's causing you trouble? What is that thing in your life that's got you paralyzed? There are many of us this morning who are paralyzed from shame. And we can't live the life that we are called to live simply because we've done too much. We, we've gone too far. I'm, I'm not positive that God can forgive this thing. We refuse to go to him because we've messed up. Right? And I'm not just talking about before you come to Christ. I'm talking about after we're in this relationship with Christ. We sin and we are scared to go to him and we are bound and paralyzed by our shame and our condemnation because we should have known better. We should have done better. Friends, this morning there is forgiveness of all sin because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you this is what he's saying. No, 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 I've already paid for that. That's a real easy prayer. No, 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 I got that. I already prayed for that. Oh, you want to see the receipt? Here you go. Got you. What, what is it that is keeping you from living this life with God that you're supposed to live? Is it, is it the, the situations that you find yourself in? Is it the circumstances? Are you suffering? Are you struggling? Are you wondering what is happening? Why is this going on? I wish I could tell you. I really wish that I had an answer for our suffering, but I don't. I really don't. And I don't ascribe to the, real, or to the, the statement that, that, that everything happens for a reason. I don't ascribe to that philosophy, but I do know that God will work all things according to his purpose. You don't have to understand it. That is difficult. This is where faith comes in. I choose to believe that even in this situation, even in this moment, even as difficult as this is, I choose to believe that you are at the right hand of the Father praying for me right now. That is how this is a tool for our shame, for our condemnation, for our suffering. Is that it, because it causes us to introduce faith into that situation. Believe in God. Believe also in me. God, I thank you so much for who you are. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, consume our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen.